0: Lesson 3 for October 11 to 17, Enduring Temptation. Sabbath afternoon, October 11. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you this week, we are going to be opening your Word. We're going to be looking at how we can endure temptation and come out the other end successfully connected with you. And as we do so, we pray that your Holy Spirit will... Enlighten your word in our hearts and our minds Bless us also in our personal lives this week too We pray in Jesus' name, Amen Our memory text this week is James one twelve. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life Which the Lord has promised to them that love him Let's read that again, James one twelve. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. James 1.12 We all have experienced it. We resolve not to give in to temptation, but in the heat of the battle, our resolve melts, and much to our own sense of shame and self-loathing, we fall into sin. Sometimes it seems that the more we focus on not sinning, the more powerless against temptation we feel, and the more hopeless our condition appears. We wonder if indeed we are saved at all. It's hard to imagine any serious Christian who hasn't wondered about his or her own salvation, especially after having just fallen into sin. Fortunately, we can have victory over the temptations that so easily ensnare us. None of us, no matter how enveloped in sin, is hopeless. For our Father of lights, as it says in James 1.17, is greater than our propensity to evil. And only in Him and through His word can we have victory. That's the message from the verses we will study this week. Sure, temptations are real. Sin is real, and the battle against self is very real. But God is real too, and through Him we can more than overcome the temptations that brew inside us, just waiting to take us down. Sunday, October 12, The Root of Temptation Question. Read James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Why is it important that God does not tempt anyone? Where does temptation originate? And how can this knowledge be helpful in our own struggle with sin? James 1, beginning at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. James is emphatic. Not only is God not the author of evil, he is not the source of temptation either. Evil itself is the source of temptation. According to this passage, the problem lies within us, which is the main reason it's so hard to resist. Thus, the battle against sin begins in the mind. As much as many might not want to hear it, the truth is that we choose to sin. No one can force us. Romans chapter 6, verses 16 and 18 read... Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Sinful Desires Inclinations and propensities do constantly capture our attention by using common hunting and fishing terms James one fourteen describes these inward promptings our own desires lure and entice us, and when we give in to them they finally hook and entrap us question Read Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 17, Psalm 119, verse 11, and Luke 4, 8. What common theme is seen in all? And how does that relate to the question of victory over temptation? First of all, Ephesians 6, verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And Psalm 119, And verse 11, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And Luke 4, verse 8, And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. In the passages in James, he clearly separates temptation from sin. Being tempted from within is not sin. Even Jesus was tempted. The problem is not temptation itself, but how we respond to it. Having a sinful nature is not, in and of itself, sin. However, allowing that sinful nature to control our thoughts and dictate our choices is. Thus, we have the promises found in God's Word that offer us the assurances of victory if we claim them for ourselves, and cling to them in faith. So to finish today, dwell on the idea that sin is always our own choice. After all, if it weren't our own choice, how could we be condemned for doing it? What things can we do on a daily practical level that could help to keep us from making the wrong choices? October 13 when lust conceives question read james chapter 1 verses 13 to 15 again when does temptation become sin beginning at verse 13 let no one say when he is tempted i am tempted by god for god cannot be tempted by evil nor does he himself tempt any one but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires And enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Several Greek words are used in this passage to describe how sin begins, and all of them are connected with giving birth. When a wrong desire is nurtured, sin is conceived, like a baby in the womb. Sin, when it is completely grown, gives birth to death. That's James one fifteen in the author's literal translation of the original Greek. The picture is paradoxical. The process that is supposed to give life results only in death, as we read in Romans 7 verses 10 to 13. And the commandment which was to bring life I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. Sin, like cancer, takes over and consumes its host. We all know this, for we have all been ruined by sin. Our hearts are evil, and we cannot change them. Question. Read Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Eve's experience vividly illustrates the conflict with sin. What steps led her into sin? Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. At its root, sin begins with distrusting God. Satan uses the same successful method by which he deceived a third of the angels. We read about that in Revelation 12, verses 4 and 7 to 9. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. This method raised doubts in Eve's mind about God's character. Approaching the forbidden tree was not sin, but taking and eating the fruit was. Even so, wrong thoughts seemed to have preceded her sinful act. We look at that in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. She adopted Satan's suggestions as her own. Sin always begins in the mind. Like Eve, we may think about the supposed benefits of wrongdoing. Then our imagination and feelings begin to take over. Soon we seize the bait and fall into sin. Often we wonder how it could happen. The answer is easy. We let it happen. Nobody forced us into sin. As Ellen White writes in an article titled Christian Privileges and Duties, published in the Signs of the Times, October 4, 1883, By earnest prayer and living faith, we can resist the assaults of Satan and keep our hearts unspotted from pollution. The strongest temptation is no excuse for sin. However great the pressure brought to bear upon the soul, transgression is our own act. It is not in the power of earth or hell to compel anyone to sin. The will must consent, the heart must yield, or passion cannot overbear reason, nor iniquity triumph over righteousness. Tuesday, October 14, Every Good and Perfect Gift James 1, verses 16 and 17 reads, Do not err, my beloved brethren, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Although sin gives birth to death, God is the source of life. He is the Father of lights, as it said in verse 17. And that's a reference to the creation, obviously. Genesis one fourteen and 16 said, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth, and to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. God gives us birth to a new life, which is the greatest gift we can get from above as it's said in verse 17, and also in John chapter 3 and verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Like Paul, who speaks of salvation as the result of God's grace in Romans 3, 23, and Ephesians 2, and Second Timothy chapter 1, James 17 calls salvation a gift. Let's look at those other verses. Romans 3, 23 and 24, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves... It is the gift of God. And 2 Timothy one nine, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. More so in the next verse, James makes it clear that salvation, this new birth, is the result of God's purpose and will for us. James 1.18, in fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth. That is, God wants us to be saved. It was his will, from even before we existed, that we should have salvation and a new life in him, now and for all eternity. Question how does James' depiction compare with the description by Paul and Peter of the new birth? Let's look at uh, Titus chapter 3, verses 5-7. to 7. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides for ever. Jesus, Paul, Peter and James all connect salvation with the new birth. God's whole purpose in the plan of salvation is to reconnect sin-battered and broken human beings with heaven. The rift was so big and so wide that nothing humans could do could have ever bridged it. Only God's word in human form, Jesus, could reconnect heaven to earth. The inspired word, as it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, is uniquely able to breathe spiritual life into those whose hearts are open to receive the gift. In short, our Father of lights so loves us that even as undeserving as we are, he gives us, as it says in James one seventeen, every good gift and every perfect gift. The best of all gifts being Jesus and the new birth, that he offers so to finish today what are the gifts you've been given from above why is it so important to dwell on them and what happens when we don't Wednesday, October 15, Slow to Speak Question. Read James, chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. What important point is he making there? So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. God's word is powerful, but so are human words. How often have we spoken words that later we wish we could take back? Unfortunately, just being aware of how hurtful wrong words can be and how destructive anger is does little to help us get ourselves under control. Left to our own devices, we can never really change. That is why we need to listen more to God and let Him work in us. A quote here. When every other voice is hushed and in quietness we wait before him, the silence of the soul makes more distinct the voice of God. He bids us, be still and know that I am God. And that's from the Ministry of Healing, page 58. By contrast, problems arise when we stop listening to God and to each other. Whether in the home, at work, or in the church, arguments ensue when listening stops, when that happens, talking begins to accelerate and anger builds. This slippery slope of sinful communication, like the uncontrolled inward desires of James one fourteen and fifteen, can never produce the righteousness of God. That is why James juxtaposes God's righteousness with human wrath. As long as we rely on what bubbles up naturally from our sinful nature, the creative power of God's Word is blocked, and our own unhelpful or even hurtful words arise instead. No wonder that right after talking about all that our Father of Lights does for us by the gift of a new life, James tells us to be careful with what we say. Question what do the following passages teach about words? First of all, Proverbs fifteen one, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Isaiah 50 verse 4 The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak. A word in season to him who is weary, he awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned, And Ephesians 2, verse 29. Let not corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers? And Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 4. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. And Colossians chapter 4 verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. And so to finish today, think about the last time someone devastated you with his or her words. The depth of emotion you felt should show you just how powerful words can be, either for good or bad. What can you do to help keep your words under control? Why is it so important to think before you speak? Thursday, October sixteen, saved by receiving. Question: Read James one twenty one. What role does the word have in what James is saying? Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. This verse concludes all that has been said so far about faith and salvation. It is an appeal to put away all impurity and separate ourselves from wickedness. The command, put away, as used in the Revised Standard Version, is used seven out of nine times in the New Testament for detaching oneself from the evil habits that have no place in a life submitted to Christ. Just listen to these. Romans 13, verse 12, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armour of light. And Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 22, that you put off, concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And the same chapter, verse 25, therefore putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one and other, And Colossians chapter 3 and verse 8, but now you yourselves are to put off all these, Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth? And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And First Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. It can also refer to the taking off of clothing, as in Acts 7.58, And they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So that the taking off of our filthy rags of sin as in Isaiah 64, verse 6, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away, may also be implied. Indeed, the word filthiness occurs in James for the filthy clothes of the poor, in contrast to the sparkling clean clothing of the rich, as in James 2, two. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, like Jesus... James decries the human tendency to be so concerned with outward appearance because God is concerned above all with the condition of our hearts. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word filthy, ripraros, is used in only one passage. In Zechariah chapter 3 and verses 3 and 4 where Joshua the high priest represents sinful Israel. Let's look at that. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. God takes away the high priest's filthy garments and clothes him with a clean robe, symbolising Israel's forgiveness and cleansing. This scene is very different from the popular Christian image we sometimes see of Jesus putting a clean white robe over the sinner's dingy, soiled clothes. Who would do this in real life? Nobody puts clean clothes over dirty ones. Likewise, in Zechariah, the filthy garments are removed before the clean robe is put on. This doesn't mean that we must be without sin before we can be clothed in Christ's righteousness. If that were true, who could be saved? It also doesn't mean that we cannot be saved or return to Jesus if we fall back into sin. Instead, it means that we must completely surrender to Him, choosing to die daily to our old sinful ways and allow Him to create us into His image. Christ's perfect robe of righteousness will then cover us. So to finish today, read again James 1.21 Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. How deeply are you seeking to apply what it says here to your life? What does it mean to engraft the word into your heart? And how can you do it? Friday, October 17. From the book Desire of Ages, page 311, the plan of redemption contemplates our complete recovery from the power of Satan. Christ always separates the contrite soul from sin. He came to destroy the works of the devil and he has made provision that the Holy Spirit shall be imparted to every repentant soul to keep him from sinning. And, from Christ Object Lessons, page 67-68, to if you have accepted Christ as a personal saviour, you are to forget yourself and try to help others. Talk of the love of Christ, tell of his goodness. Do every duty that presents itself. Carry the burden of souls upon your heart, and by every means in your power, seek to save the lost. As you receive the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of unselfish love and labour for others, you will grow and bring forth fruit. The graces of the Spirit will ripen in your character. Your faith will increase, your convictions deepen, your love be made perfect. More and more you will reflect the likeness of Christ in all that is pure, noble and lovely. And that brings us to our five discussion questions for this week. 1. Think more about the reality of the power of words. Why are they, say, powerful? How can language be easily manipulated? How often is how we say or write something just as important or even more important than what we say or write? 2. Of all the gifts that you have been given from above, which is the greatest one and why? 3. Read over James 1, verses 12 to 21. What is the essential message there? What hopes and promises are there for us? Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning." Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And four, lust brings forth sin, and sin brings forth death. Why, with such high stakes before us, do we not have the victories that should be ours? What are the ways in which we rationalise sin? And why is that always a dangerous mind game to play? And five, read the last Ellen White statement above. What crucial counsel is found there, especially for those... Who might be wavering in faith? Inside Story Our mission story continues today. It's titled Heidi's Hope Part Two. The demons in Marilla struggled against the family members who took her to the Seventh-day Adventist church. During the struggle, Marilla fainted. When the family tried to carry her limp body through the church door, they could feel a powerful force pushing them away. Inside the church, the congregation prayed while deacons tried to pull the family into the church. Finally, they managed to enter the church. They laid Marilla on the floor in the pastor's office. The pastor told Marilla's family, We do not have any powers to fight against the devil and his spirits, but I can call on the one who has defeated sin and the devil, Christ Jesus, our Lord. He urged the family to confess their sins and call on the power of God to overrule. Then the pastor knelt beside Marilla's still form and prayed. He invited the holy angels of heaven to join in the battle for her soul. Then, with a strong voice, he commanded, "'With the angel host beside me, "'and with Christ already the victor, "'I command you, Satan, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, "'to get out of her.' Marilla screamed loudly and began to speak, but the pastor repeated the command, "'In the name of the Lord, get out of her.' The girl became quiet and lay on the floor, still unconscious. When Marilla opened her eyes, She stood up and rushed into the arms of a family member, clinging to his neck in fear. Heidi placed her hand on Marilla's shoulder. You are safe, Heidi said. Christ has freed you from the claws of Satan. The girls rejoiced in their newfound peace and made preparations for baptism. But the day before their baptism, Marilla began speaking in a strange voice saying, I hate Pastor Juan, I hate him. The evil spirit had returned to try one last time to control Marilla. Someone asked the spirit why it hated Pastor One, and the spirit answered, Tomorrow he will force me to leave this body, and I have no place to go. With increasing anger, the spirit said, I will kill Heidi and Marilla before they are baptized. Then the spirit forced Marilla to grab a knife and try to cut her own wrists. Several people wrestled the knife away from Marilla while the others prayed. In the name of Jesus, the devil left her. The next day at her baptism, Marilla testified that horrible monsters had held her so tightly that she could not break free. But when the people prayed in the name of Jesus, a stronger hand broke Satan's grip and set her free. It was the hand of Jesus, the only one more powerful than the demon's. Never leave the safety of Jesus, Heidi told the congregation. Jesus is the only one who can set you free from the bonds of Satan. Your reader this week has been Dr. Percy Harold. The lessons have been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember that God is always faithful.